This morning I thought it would be a good idea if we took a boat ride in the book of Matthew. Is that okay? Particularly paying attention to what I'm calling today the second boat. Who's willing to go with me on a boat ride today? Some of you aren't sure. What's, what, what's, he, what's he doing here? I want you to go to the book of Matthew, right from the get-go here. Go to chapter 14, the book of Matthew. This is not a story that's unfamiliar to you. I know that. In verse 22 of this 14th chapter, it's the story of Jesus getting ready to release his disciples to go on a boat ride, this time without him. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 14, uh, beginning with verse 22. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples, there's an interesting word, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, or what would be known as the fourth watch of the night, about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified, and in fear they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. He said, don't be afraid. Take courage. It's just, it's me. I'm here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. He said, oh, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Let me just repeat that last verse, of verse 33. And then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Now, this chapter, when you read it from the beginning, is just filled with lots of bad stuff uh, that's happening. It just seems to grow with intensity as the chapter progresses and, and keeps going, all the way from the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, being beheaded because of the young lady who had done a seductive dance uh, before Herod, and therefore he was going to give her whatever she wanted. Her mother made the request, we want the head of John the Baptist, you know that. All the way to storms striking the disciples because, literally, because they are obeying God. We're going to deal with that in just a second. To a young man, Peter, who's about to sink in the water because he's walking out on the water by faith to the command of God. But even before all of that, something else has happened. They're running out of food, and Jesus has to show up and multiply the food that they did have, which was, what was it, five loaves and two, two fish. It just appears that with everything in this chapter that's going on, there's, there's just a, a sense of unsteadiness that takes place with all of it. Because it's not just one thing that's happening, it's, it, it's, it's one thing after another that keeps happening. One thing, and then another thing, and then another, another thing, and the intensity just seems to keep building. Does anybody understand what that concept's like? Nobody? Okay. 
one thing after another. Don't you ever feel like sometimes you're just coping with one issue or trying to navigate your way through with whatever is on you right now? And before you even finish with that, here comes some, something else, another problem. Am I the only person this has happened to? All right. And then about the time, you, okay, that second problem's come along, and now you're trying to manage your way through that. And then here comes something else. It's one thing after another after another. It was the old monk that said this. He says, I know God won't give me more than I can bear. I just wish he didn't think quite so highly of me and didn't think I could bear quite so much. How many say that's me? I, don't, I wish God didn't think quite so much of me at times. Well, the strange part of this chapter is that with all the bad things that are happening, it almost appears that it's Jesus who is the one imposing all the stuff upon them. Because prior to the, the boat ride, there, there was no storm. Prior to them getting in the boat, it, it appears that the waters were really somewhat calm. And I can't help but find it interesting that in our first verse that we read, verse 22, we see that Jesus made them get in the boat. It says literally, we, we read it, he insisted that they get in the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were one of the disciples, I would probably have made a note to self in the beginning that whenever Jesus asks you to go on a boat ride, don't go. Because if you've noticed, every boat ride with Jesus, there's a storm or something bad that happens. And I, you know, I kind of think, and I wasn't there then, but I kind of think I would have figured out by now that getting in the boat with Jesus most likely means you're, you're headed into some kind of a challenging situation. I, and I think I probably said, no, no, thank you. Doesn't matter that it's the Sea of Galilee or the Trinity River. I think I'm going to pass, whatever it is. Because with these boat rides, there always seems to be some lesson of faith that I, you know, I, I, I guess I would rather learn lessons of faith sitting on a pew here in Bethesda. How about you? Rather than out on the open sea. But our text says that immediately he insisted that the disciples get back in the boat. He insisted. Now, as parents, there's all kinds of things that we, we insist that our children do, right? And there's a reason for that because we know what's best for them. We know it's important that they brush their teeth and they go to bed at night. We insist on these things because we know what's best for them. So obviously, there must have been some level of resistance from the disciples because Jesus was having to insist, and I have to draw the conclusion that the disciples had wised up to the whole boat thing, and they figured out that Jesus plus boat trip spells trouble, any way that you, any way that you put it. So he had to insist. But what's unusual about this boat ride this time, if you remember the details, instead of getting in the boat with them, you can deduce from the reading that Jesus was untethering the boat from the shore and was pushing them out to go out on their own. And can't you just see the disciples in that moment knowing, you know, this whole boat ride idea I'm not sure is a good idea anyway, but now he's, he's unhooking the boat from the shore and you can go, hey, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. What, what's going on here and what, what are you doing and why aren't you going with us? Well, the reason... They might have felt that way, would have, because, would have been because of what took place in the matching story that I'm going to ask you to flip back to just a few chapters in Matthew chapter 8. It's another storm story, and I think, I think you remember this one as well. Because in the chapter 8 boat story, Jesus is in the boat with them. 
But in our chapter 14 boat story that we've just read, he gets them in the boat, but then he sends them on their way without him. Let's just take a brief look at the first boat story in Matthew 8 and see why these guys might have been a little apprehensive about Jesus not going with them. Matthew 8, uh, I'm going to start at verse 24. Suddenly, this is the first boat story, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But what was Jesus doing? He was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. And then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly all was calm, and the disciples were amazed, saying, who is this man? They asked, even the winds and the waves obey him. So in this boat ride, the first boat ride here, Jesus is in the boat, but he's sleeping. But in our chapter 14 boat ride that we read first, which is really the the second boat ride, Jesus stays ashore, but he goes to the mountain to pray. So we have two completely different situations here, though both are related to what we would maybe call the boat test, as it were. So why do they need a boat test? Because it seems like they're just facing the same thing over and over again. And I guess what I want to propose to you today is a simple answer that I have uh, to that question. I'm going to ask you to consider why are they going through this boat test again and again because I think it might be possible that somebody in the room today, you're, you're in the boat test this very, very moment. If you can, if you want to keep one finger in chapter 8 and another uh, finger in chapter 14, I want us to compare how these two boat stories end because they do not end the same way. In chapter 8, the last verse of the story of verse 27, this is the first boat story, it says this, the disciples were amazed, saying, who is this man, they ask, who is he? Wow, even the winds and the waves obey him. But then let's go back to our second boat story, chapter 14, which ends in verse 33, where they say this, then... The disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaim. The first storm, chapter 8, ends with a question mark. Who is he? Who is this man? The second storm of chapter 14 ends with them soaking wet, but having a worship service because this story ends with an exclamation point as they say, truly he is the Son of God. Now, my theory is that the first storm, they just didn't have full knowledge yet of who Jesus was. They just didn't know. Therefore, that dilemma produced the questions, what's going on? Or or, why is this happening to us? Why are we in this situation? And you, you know what it is to have questions about your circumstances. Uh, Becky and I certainly do. We spent a big part of 2016 asking why questions. And I know many of you walked through 2016 with lots of why questions of your, of your own. But you know what happened to us. We had just buried Becky's mother at the end of 2015. 
Then on a Saturday night in April of 2016, out of nowhere and for reasons that we still don't know, having never had a back issue before in my life, I somehow managed to have pushed out of my spinal column a herniated disc and it grabbed the L4 nerve, pinched it and stretched it and brought it out with it out of the spinal column. It was a fun day. It really was. I experienced pain levels that I had no idea were even there. I even made up some of my own. The pain was never really in my back. People are always asking me, how's your back? My back's fine. The pain, because it was the L4 nerve, was shooting down all the way down my leg. And so that's what happened. Then just a few days after that, um, our son-in-law accepted an assignment from the U.S. Army that moved him to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, Pittsburgh, to us, when you're in Fort Worth, Texas, feels like the other side of the world, let me just tell you. And he determined that he needed to take our daughter with him (laughs) because she is his wife. That would be the reason for that. So then about six weeks after that, Becky had to have right rotator cuff surgery and a reattachment of her bicep, and she was a complete mess for a while. I I had to blow dry her hair because she said she couldn't lift her arm, and I had to do all kinds of things for her. And by the way, she's still milking that one as much as she possibly can. And she's completely healed by this time. And in the midst of all of that, There were other issues going on that we were fighting on a a daily basis. And honestly, I mean, our why questions kind of went through the roof for 2016. Our world pretty much felt like grief and pain and hurt and sorrow and loss and grief and pain and hurt and sorrow and loss over and over again. Does anybody remember that old hymn of the church, Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me? (laughs) Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck... Oh, you sing those hymns so well. (laughs) Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Well, that's just in case you're not sure that's really not in your hymnal. (laughs) But we could easily sing that song because our minds and our hearts, as we walked through 2016, they were filled with why? Oh, my goodness, why? Not even over one problem, and another one showed up, and it was over and over and over and over again. We began to say things like, well, so what's going on with this boat that we're in? Is it the Titanic? It feels like the Titanic. We just wanted off the boat, to be honest. Of course, we had all kinds of people meaning well saying, what is the Lord teaching you through all of this? And some days, the only thing I can say, well, he's teaching us that pain really hurts. And you need to be really sure you don't run out of hydrocodone when you're in that kind of pain. But seriously, we were asking the Lord. Lord, because it just was, you know, it was was so much at one time. Do you ever have problems that come along that just feel so random to you? Just random. Just coming from one place and then another. And it it felt so random to us that after a while you start to say, Lord, what what are you trying to say to us? What message are you trying to communicate to us? And we began to sense that every trial, every bad boat ride, every storm, everything that you go through. You know what we think we learned through this process? Through all that stuff that you go through, it should not end with question marks about Jesus. Like the first boat ride. No, it should end with an exclamation point of praise and worship. Like the second boat ride. And God was saying that no matter what you're faced with, no matter what you're going through, the goal of God 
in the finale of the boat ride for you is worship. Are you hearing me yet today? Not, why, God, are you doing all this to me? Not, do you really love me? Not, the finale is not, what's really going on here? The finale is not, is there even a God? No, because this is a perfect place for me to remind all of us what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is imperishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying to his church is this. The end of your situation should be a greater view of who Jesus is. Now, you may not want to hear it that way if you're right in the middle of the boat ride and the waves are splashing in on you right now. I understand that. Because we know what that feels like. But I'm telling you, at the end of it all, it's a greater view of who Jesus is. Not a question mark that would ask, who is this guy? That even nature, uh, he speaks to nature and it stops. But when we get out of the second boat, we are able to say, oh, truly you are the Son of God. And that's what happens in verse 33 of Matthew 14, as we've read. But I just want to be real vulnerable with you here today for a second. And I want to say this because I think this is true for many of us. The problem that can so easily confuse us is that sometimes, you're not going to like this, by the way, because I don't like it. Sometimes your obedience can put you in a storm. Sometimes your obedience can put you in a storm. The disciples, if you were following me in this story, the disciples are not going through a storm because while Jesus was preaching, they were at a bar. That's not, that wasn't the problem. Or they were out smoking weed or doing something they shouldn't be doing. No, they were with Jesus. And listening to Jesus sometimes can put you in a difficult place because they were doing exactly what they were told to do. They were doing exactly what he had insisted they should be doing. They got into the boat at his insistence in obedience to him, having no idea that the storm was next. Sometimes when we face difficulties, first thing that you and I tend to want to do is we want to figure out why we're being punished. Have you ever been there? Lord, I got this problem going on. What, what am I being punished for? And let's be honest, we are conditioned to associate difficulties with disobedience. We are conditioned to think of it that way. We're having difficulties because of disobedience. Rarely will you ever hear someone say, well, I am in this storm because I obeyed God. You almost never hear that. And somehow, years ago, we allowed a certain verse to sink into our minds that says this. We believe that for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And I know what it is to have people sit in my office with tears streaming down their face saying to me, Pastor, these are not the seeds that we have sown. This, this is not 
This is not the seeds that we have sown, and yet this is the harvest that, that, that we're getting. We raised that girl better than this. We did teach that boy the ways of God. We did not sow these seeds, and we automatically think, I'm in a storm, which means somehow it looks like I have messed up. And we can even concern ourselves with what other people think. I'm in this storm because I've messed up. Because we seem to be only able to associate storm with Jonah. And we know what happened to him. It was out of disobedience. But rarely, if ever, do we associate storm with obedient disciples like we see in our text today. Do you know, Bethesda, that you can be right in the center of the will of God and yet be going through the hardest time of your life? Hello? You can be right in the center of God's will and yet going through the hardest time of your life. Our friend Ravi Zacharias, who's spoken here a couple of times in his book, Why Christianity Has Failed You, He says something extremely profound when he says this. Think of the moment when Jesus felt furthest from God. As he is hanging on a cross, he cries out in Aramaic, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Ravi goes on to say this. He says, think of this. He is asking where God is while he is absolutely in the center of God. God's will redeeming the planet back to God. But the time he felt furthest was when he was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. And he was perfectly in the will of Father God. Church, every storm is not a Jonah storm. Just as every storm is not a disobedient storm. And I hate to tell you this, but the reality of, is, of, the, of it is this. There are disobedient storms and there are obedient storms. There's both. And what we're looking at today is an obedient storm. Jesus himself told them to get into that boat. I think there's another misnomer that some folks think. I, I think we've got a few people, even some maybe around here, who think that being a Christian is a, is a is a get-out-of-jail-free card. How many know that's not the truth? Just because you're a Christian does not mean you are going to live a life without difficulties. But the good news is this. Because you're a Christian, you get someone walking through you with every difficulty that you face. Because if you signed up for this Christian experience of walking with Jesus, I certainly hope you read the fine print. How many of you read the fine print? You need to know what you've gotten yourself into. I've learned of um, an experiment that was done to prove that people don't read the fine print. How many of you will willingly confess with me, I don't always read the fine print? Okay. So there was this experiment. They had this offer that instead of paying $9.99 for Boingo or whatever it is that they call it at the airport for, to get a Wi-Fi connection, you've probably seen it, that you can get it for free If you simply clicked on the little box that says, I agree. Now, how many of us have just, you know, just get past all that and click I agree because we want to get on with what we're doing, right? Well, it became obvious that no one read the fine print at all. Again, this was for an experiment. So, for the sake of the experiment, you know, let me tell you what was in the terms and agreements of the fine print. 
To be able to use this free Wi-Fi internet service, you have to give them your firstborn child. And the people who conducted the survey said that every person clicked on, I agree. Every person owed them their firstborn child just to get 30 minutes of free Wi-Fi. And I think that sufficiently proves that no one reads the fine print. Well, let me just help you with the fine print of the Bible. Because this is what Jesus said, just in case, case you clicked on, I agree, without reading this part. He said this, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have I can't hear you. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Somebody ought to say hallelujah to that today. The fine print is there. Yes, there will be trouble. Yes, you will have obedient storms also. But yes, Jesus will be with you every single time. Our problem is that when we don't understand this, it can easily happen that the storms can disfigure Jesus in our mind's eye. You can only miss him, but he can be misunderstood or misdefined. What can happen is this. Listen to me this morning. The recognizable Jesus who has just provided the loaves and fishes is unrecognizable in their obedient storm. And I want you, want you to listen to this. Look at what they said when the storm was raging in the middle of the night. What did they say? We read it a while ago. He came during the fourth watch of the night about 3 o'clock in the morning and they said, oh, it's a ghost. So here's what we've got to understand about this. Listen to me. The disciples knew the bread and fishes multiplying Jesus they knew the healing Jesus. They knew the storm calming Jesus from chapter 8. They knew the demon delivering Jesus, but as of yet, they had not seen the water walking Jesus. Yeah, you're not getting this yet. My daddy was here about now. He would say, I feel the preach coming on. Listen to me. Let me just drive the point home clear for you. Some of you in this room, may have encountered the saving Jesus. You may have encountered the baptizing Jesus. You may have experienced his grace and know what it is to know the healing Jesus or as provider, Jehovah Jireh, the providing Jesus. But not yet have you seen the marriage restoring Jesus. And you're just not sure if he can do that because a storm will disfigure him in your mind. It's a ghost. At 3 o'clock in the morning. And here's the part that is so wonderful. Was he in the boat with them at the time of the storm? Yes or no? Yes or no? He was on the mountain praying for them. Ever interceding to the Father on their behalf. That's what verse 23 tells us of chapter 14. There's a statement I found from an old Scottish preacher by the name of Robert Murray McShane, and this really ought to bring comfort to all of us today. Just listen to these words. He said this, 
if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. And then he said this, and yet distance makes no difference to Jesus. He is praying for me right now. So that means that while you sit here in this room this morning, feeling alone in the battle that you're facing, maybe struggling as a single parent or struggling as a single person or struggling as a married person, struggling with your health, struggling with your job, struggling with what the future holds, can we all be reminded this morning that you are never, ever, 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 never, ever, ever fighting your battle alone. The battle is the Lord's. He is ever interceding for you. He's always bringing your name, always bringing your situation before the Father because He is our great intercessor and His name is Jesus. Can we just take 10 seconds and lift our hands and say, thank you, Jesus, that you're always interceding for me. Come on, just 10 seconds is all I'm asking. 10 seconds. Thank you, Lord, that you care. And every battle of life that I go through, everything that I'm facing, you are ever interceding on my behalf. And I don't want us to miss the importance of verse 24. We read it earlier. Meanwhile, while Jesus is praying, the disciples were in a trouble, were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. Some versions, in fact, most versions say the winds were contrary. Now, haven't we always believed that if we were in the will of God, the wind should be behind us, pushing us? Surely, if it's a God thing and it's the will of God, Everything's just going to be smooth, and we've got that wind to our back, and man, it's just pushing us forward. Hallelujah. That's what we believe. Not the wind in front of me holding me back. No, 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 no. That can't be God's will. Well, we've got to look at it for what it is. Jesus puts them in this position where the wind is contrary to them, which seems almost counterproductive to me. Becky and I recently had dinner with a fine couple from this church. He's an airline pilot. and We were at dinner and talking about his work as a pilot, and I shared with the couple that in my early adulthood, I really struggled with flying. Um, I was what they would have called in my uh, early mid-early 20s, I was what they would call a white knuckler. How I many you know what I'm talking about? And there were reasons for that. I had lost some friends and in, uh, in a compacted period of time, in several um, airplane accidents, there were, there were some reasons why I, my apprehension was uh, accelerated. But I was telling this couple that I finally got over my apprehension when, at that time, I uh, was already on staff here at Bethesda. There was another pilot in the church who discovered my white knuckle problem. I just out of conversation with him. and So what he did, this other pilot, back when I was in my mid-20s, just, uh, just a few years ago, and... Um, he, uh, he would take me to lunch. He'd find out when I was going to have my next flight, and then he would, afterwards, we would, we would talk about it. 
And it, it really was a help to me. He'd say, you know, here's the feelings and the sensations, and when you feel this particular thing, the pilots are doing this and, and doing that. And he, he just talked me through it, and I noticed that little by little, as I would get up in the air and I would feel some of the stuff, you know, they're tweaking the engines to balance and whatever you pilots do, you know, that's going to sound a certain way. And, and um, I, I could expect certain things to happen. And, and um, he told me, he told me something I've never forgotten. I told him about a flight where the winds and turbulence was so strong while we were still on the ground that uh, the pilot came on and speaker and he told the passengers that, that the winds were so strong on the ground they couldn't even get the beverage cart up into the plane due to the winds and that there would be no beverages for this four-hour flight. What a comfort, just a real comfort. You know you're in for a wild ride and... Of course, here's my thinking is like this. If you can't even get the beverage cart up in the air, what on earth makes you think you can get this whole big airplane up in the air? And so that was my concern, but it didn't seem to stop the process. I thought, okay, and they take off and pull away from the gate and taxi it into the runway, and the pilot said something that made sense. He says, folks, we have a very strong wind in front of us, and we're going to fly right into that wind. And I thought about speaking up and saying, I wouldn't do it that way. That's not how I would do that. And then I realized I'm not a pilot, so I should keep my hand down. I would have thought that we would position ourselves to get that strong wind behind us and let that thing speed up and, and, and cause the plane to speed up and take you right into the sky. But since he didn't seem much interested, in my opinion, as a musician, I didn't, uh, I didn't say anything. They said, the reason we fly contrary into the wind is because when you go contrary, the wind comes underneath you and creates this lift that throws you right up into the sky. And I thought, and that's supposed to make me feel better, huh? And he said, we're going to, we're going to fly into that contrary wind and it's going to put us right up in the sky and everything will be fine. You're not going to have any Coke or coffee, but everything's going to be fine and we'll be on our way. And church... It strikes me that God may be showing us that same principle this morning. He may be wanting to teach you and me that when we are going out straight into a contrary wind, that wind is going to come up underneath you and is going to provide the lift that you need to take you higher than you have ever been before. Just to teach you that you could not have gotten there if you had a wind at your back like you would have liked to have had just pushing you on forward. You couldn't have gotten to the heights and to the new place that you have in God if you just had the wind to your back. So if you want to go up to the next level in, in God, then you're going to have to face some contrary winds that will push you up to where you need to be. Come on, somebody say hallelujah to that. I know you don't like it, but it's true. You know, we've all heard this, that they say the, the wind blowing against the trees causes them to bend back and forth, and it's that wind causing them to bend that creates the strong root system in those trees. That means you don't have to be afraid, folks, when Monday comes and it has contrary winds. You may face some tomorrow. The wicked can be hurt by even good things, but it's only the godly that can be bettered and grow by the worst conditions. Thank God that we have Jesus who can give us the lift that we need. Church, he's our helper. I said he's our helper. He's going to provide exactly what you need to get you to the place where he's calling you to go. 
Because I think the goal of every bad storm in your life, every storm in my life, of the, the stormy boat ride is to increase our faith. Because if he could speak to the winds and waves and calm them in Matthew 8, why can't he harden the water in Matthew 14 to walk on it? Our challenge is to leave every boat ride not with a question. Who is this? Why is this happening? I'm not saying you can't ask those questions. But that's not how you finish it. But to allow God to increase our faith even in the midst of dealing with contrary winds and let us step off that boat with an exclamation point that says, Our God is faithful and He's worthy to be worshipped. Bless the name of the Lord. So the disciples in the boat hit with the contrary winds in the fourth watch of the night. I'm going to try to say this very quickly because I think it's an important point. The Bible says they, Jesus came to them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him, they were frightened saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Isn't it crazy what fear will make you do? Just crazy, particularly in the fourth watch of the night. Fear will make you misdefine things. Fear will remove clarity from your eyesight with regard to your situations. Fear can take over and blow things so completely out of proportion. I mean, they had just been with Jesus, but suddenly they can't recognize him. Fear had turned Jesus into a ghost. Fear had caused these guys who had been with Jesus to suddenly believe in a myth. This is what I want you to hear. That had been perpetuated in that area for some time. And the myth was this. It was believed that during the fourth watch of the night, which means between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and a sea storm comes in that fourth watch, in that time period, that it is from activity in the demonic world. How they got there, I don't know. But that was the prevailing myth. And so the disciples were trying to interpret their storm and the appearance of Jesus based upon a myth that all hell was coming against them. And any of us can be prone to do crazy things and get off track because of fear. Let me just say this, just in case it's not been said to you in a while. When fear comes, that is not the time to run to your horoscope. When fear comes, don't let somebody read your palm. Hello? It is all a myth. When fear comes, there is one thing and one thing only to do, and that is get to the truth of the Word of God, which is the truth. It is the lamp unto your feet and the light unto your path. And the Word of God will tell you that if you're a Christian, you can walk in victory no matter what your family background is, no matter where you came from, no matter what your mom and daddy did, didn't do, didn't take you to church, didn't serve God, did whatever, doesn't matter. Because if you're a child of God today, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. It may feel like all hell is breaking on you in the fourth watch of the night, but he is greater. Somebody say hallelujah to that today. In the midst of the storm, thank God we get verse 27 that says a voice comes and Jesus says, hey, it's me. It's me. And Peter still doesn't get it. He needs proof. Lord, if it's you, Lord, if it's you. And this is the part of the story that's just a little bit problematic for me. Lord, if it's you, command me to come 
to you walking on the water. I just want to tell you, I wouldn't have done that. I'm not putting myself at that kind of risk, and you can sit here and look holy at me all you want, but you wouldn't have done it either. I know you wouldn't. Now, I might have stayed on the boat and said, I need two forms of identification if it's you. It's just weird to me that he would say, Lord, if it's you, command me to come walking on, on the... Because Peter puts the burden of proof on himself. I just think that's dumb. I might have hollered out to Jesus if I'm still not sure if the fourth watch of the night and him walking in, on water makes me think that might be a ghost because it's, you know, it's the time, but whenever it is, and I had that... Th- I might have said something like, how many loaves and how many fishes... If you can answer that, then I'll know it's you. If you can't, then we got a ghost here. They know the walking on land, Jesus. But they don't yet know the walking on water, Jesus. Apply that to your situation. Sometimes, church, God may ask you to walk on ground that you're just not used to. Selah. He may be calling you and literally have placed you in a situation where you are walking on ground that you're not used to. Even when there are some doubts. There are, this is just the truth. There are just some walks of faith that you're not going to have all the answers. can't tell you how often I sit in my office with folks, and all I can do is point them to Jesus. So there's, there's not a real good answer for that. There's not. And you may be saying, in the midst of your situation, you're a Christian, you believe in the Lord, you believe that you're a person of faith, and you want to do the right thing, You're not sure if this is an obedient storm or a disobedient storm. You're still trying to check out your own situation, see where you might have, oh, God, did we make the right choice? Oh, Lord, help us. We're just not sure, just got doubts. Can I just tell you today and let you get comfort from this, that you can bring your doubts to Jesus because you may sink, but you will never drown with God. He used to sing, Jesus, Jesus. How I trust him, how I proved him, or and or. And that's that or stands for over and over, not this kind of or. How I proved him or and or. Peter starts out walking. He walks a bit. We don't know. We're not told from Scripture how long or how far. But then fear hits him again, and he starts to sink, but he cries out three words. Lord, save me. Let me tell you what I love about those three words as I bring this to a close. Pastor Brand, if you want to come. When you are sinking, it is often the situation, when you're in that kind of, that, that kind of a deal, that those three words are all you have. Is there anybody in the house this morning besides me who's been in a situation where the only thing you can say is, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. You may not have a long, eloquent prayer. But those three words are enough. And I close with just this story, very quick story. Shaler and I were, my son, were at a uh, 
conference. It wasn't just a small group of pastors who were meeting with a wonderful Bible teacher and theologian from the United Kingdom a couple of years ago. And uh, this is an elderly gentleman who has written many books on the Bible. He's just, you know, extremely well, incredible teacher, highly respected, highly revered. And yet in the midst of talking about God's faithfulness and even praying, he talked about the time when he had had to drive his wife to the doctor's office only to have the doctor give them the announcement that his wife had very, a very rapid advancing cancer. It's never the news you want to hear. Everything about that trip to the doctor's office was negative and just not at all what they would, were hoping to hear. This man, this incredibly, incredible Bible teacher, told those of us, it was just a small group, it was literally the meeting was in a house, just a small group of pastors who were there. We sat with him for a couple of days just to glean from his teaching. And he said, gentlemen, he said, let me tell you what I did. He said, we got in the car in the doctor's office, and before we pulled away, before I put the car in gear or even put it in reverse to back out of our parking place, he said, I just grabbed my wife's hand, and I prayed this prayer. Lord, you know what to do. That's it. And I thought at the most, probably the most critical time of their life and their marriage, when those threatening words come, all he could say at that moment is, Lord, you know what to do. Can I tell you that in my own life, I have echoed that now many times. I love the simplicity of it. I love the fact that we serve a God who doesn't have to have eloquent prayers are nice. We heard them on TV this week at the inauguration. That's nice. It's great. But I also know this. <laughs> Your prayer may not be grammatically correct. It may not even be theologically airtight. But three words spoken from the heart, <laughs> I'm so thankful today, will bend the ear of a loving Heavenly Father who has declared Himself to be our helper. Let's just bow our heads for just a moment before we dismiss this service. Three words from Peter. Lord, save me. It was all it took for Jesus to reach out, grab him, and help him back in the boat. And when Jesus and Peter climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. And the Bible says, and this is what I want you to take home, home with you today, that the disciples then worshipped Jesus. Speaking just personally for my wife and I, if it takes a rotator cuff and a herniated disc to get our hands in the air to worship Jesus, then so be it. Some of you are right in the midst of, a, of the second boat, right in the height of the storm. And what I've tried to get across to you today is you may know the saving Jesus. You may know the Jesus who has done any number of incredible things in your life. You may have witnessed signs and wonders and miracles and all kinds of things. But somehow today you find yourself in uncharted territory. Being called upon to walk upon ground that is unknown to you and unsteady for you. You may be dealing with fear. You may be dealing with doubt. But I want us all to be reminded today that our fear and our doubt does not intimidate Jesus. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, I just speak for all of us here today, if I dare to do so, as we are before your throne. Can we just let it be known today that we are yours to command wherever you lead us. And if you will go with us, Lord, we can go anywhere. Your grace can sustain us through anything, even if it is an obedient storm, a storm that is a result of our obedience to you. Thank you, Lord, that you are always there. Go to the highest heights or the deepest depths. You are always there. Let's stand together, church, this morning. Prayer team, if you want to quickly, those of you who can quickly get in your place. I can't preach a message like this without at least asking those of you who, have, who are responding in your hearts to it. You want someone to anoint you and pray the prayer of faith for you. Let them just come and pray for you quickly as we bring this service to a close. And Pastor Brent leads us in a song. Step right out with it from the balcony or wherever. Step out quickly and let them just anoint you with oil. They're going to pray a quick prayer for you today as we sing together.